Today's guest is a very familiar face from television and film, but his theater credits date back to his grad student days at the Yale School of Drama and the Yale Rep, the earliest seasons of the American Repertory Theater, productions at the New York Shakespeare Festival, and intermittent forays to Broadway in shows including The Odd Couple, The Heidi Chronicles, Conversations with My Father, and the current revival of Ken Ludwig's farce, Lend Me a Tenor. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm particularly excited, for reasons we'll come to, to meet Tony Shalhoub. Welcome, Tony. Thank you, Howard. Pleasure to be here. Lend me a tenor. As pure a farce as they come. What drew you to doing this production? Well, uh, a number of uh, a number of factors, really. Stanley Tucci being the main the main factor. Stanley called me about a year ago. Uh, I was in Los Angeles to, working on my last season of uh, Monk, and and Stanley said he was uh, going to direct this uh, uh, show on Broadway, and would I like to come into a reading of this play that they had chosen? And um, I had never seen the play. Uh, I think it, it was on Broadway when I lived in New York in the in the late eighties, but uh, for some reason I, I I was busy or, or out of town and didn't see it. Um, but I read it I read it and uh, came to New York to do the reading, and it just. It, it it was just it just jumped off the page. Does it? I mean, so much. There's so much physical stuff in the show. Can you just read this show and get a sense of of how it might play? Well, I I did because it, it's written, in, you know, in a certain rhythm. There's a music to it that that's kind of irresistible. And also, you know, I was looking to do something after eight years on the on the series. I was looking to do a character very different from Adrian Monk, and this character of Saunders, who is the impresario, it just felt like I was just kind of, you know, shedding a skin and breaking out of, you know, breaking out of handcuffs or whatever. It, it was, it, it was sort of liberating, uh, even just doing this this reading. And um, I knew that Stanley would assemble a terrific cast, and uh, it it just just fit into the. Just fit into the whole continuum really well. So when you agreed to do it, no one else was cast yet? Or that well, at least you weren't aware of them? I, uh, interestingly, um, I thought that um, the T.R. Knight was going, to, was going to do the part of Max. He, I had done two readings with him here in New York and it looked like that was um, you know, a slam dunk. And, and um, for some reason, other things came up for him, I guess, and uh, – he withdrew, so so they found Justin, and that was a that was a, a, a coup. And then Anthony um, signed on, and I think the only one that that remained from the from the reading was uh, Jan Maxwell, who plays Maria, and uh, Brooke. Well, Brooke did the second reading with us, and you're referring and, to your wife, Brooke right? Adams. And everybody else came, you know, came on board after that. Mm-hmm. Now, Stanley Tucci. Is an actor of great repute, certainly for film, television work, and stage work. But this was his first, certainly his first major directing gig um, in the theater. In yes, the theater, of course. So, what was it like to tackle farce, which is so much about 
timing and precision and and all of those things with someone who had not staged a play, at least in a major venue, before. Well, it was interesting. I mean, I think Stanley, you know, had directed uh, The Imposters, which was his second film that, uh, that um, I worked on too, which was a 1930s, you know, screwball comedy um, that we shot a couple of years after Big Night. And um, I think based on that experience, he's always been a kind of a um, you know he's been drawn to to farce and especially uh, well this, this particular period of the 1930s seems to be you know right in his wheelhouse. So um, but but of course you know doing a play is always different from doing a movie, and um, he was amazingly focused and and amazingly uh, you know he just he just had this vision in his head we could tell. As, as we as we got into the early rehearsals, and it was that perfect combination of feeling like you were in really really capable, well prepared hands, but being given a lot of freedom to discover things, find things, try things, discard things, and um, out of that came this uh, you know this kind of wonderful experience of of, of lend me a tenor, this kind of steeplechase of a of a play. Um, so, so Stanley really, really um, – it, it was the clarity of vision, I think. But In terms of, as you were saying, breaking away from a character with whom you'd long been associated, um, there's a character on the page. You know you wanted to break out from what you've been doing. Um, how much did you find your character during the course of rehearsals or did you – from those readings and from having read it, did you have a take – from the get-go? I had a take uh, from the initial read-throughs. Um, I, had a, I had a sense of the, of the, uh, the kind of the, the, the motor of the character, the, 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 the level of, of uh, agitation and, and, and kind of mania that he has. But I, I, wasn't, I, I wasn't really clear or, or, or even prepared for the uh, the physical uh, life of the character, which we you know thanks to Stanley again thanks to the help that Stanley gave us, uh, we discovered in rehearsal. Um, I, uh, <laughs> I I guess I you know we just chose to make it extremely uh, um, well how shall I say, you know, nearly suicidal. This, this guy is just thrashing about. And, and I, it, it, it was difficult in the beginning, in the early going. My body was not prepared, um, you know, spending, even though Monk was, um, you know, there was a bit of a physical life to that. You know, being on a television, you know, a soundstage for 14 hours a day, you know, you, uh, you tend to get kind of sedentary. There's a lot more sitting around than there is actually, you know, acting in front of the cameras. So, so getting into this play and getting into this role uh, it was kind of like training for uh, an athletic uh, event. Or it, it, it just it it. I mean, I much to my surprise, I you know lost twenty pounds. I I I've, I've been you know visiting a chiropractor a couple times a week and. Um, 
getting as many massages as I can, you know, afford. And because um, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not a young young man anymore. And but you, you were not a big heavy man to begin with. I mean, sitting here with you, it's noticeable. And you were using all the metaphors about the body. I mean, this this is. I mean, you, you're not going to necessarily be the next weight loss TV competition show, <laughs> but no. it's clearly had had a physical effect on you. Absolutely, it's it's uh, you know it's forced me to uh, in, in in a good way to change my diet, to change my eating habits, to change my drinking habits. My, um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm just, I, I'm just, I just feel, I feel like I'm in the best shape I've been in in probably 20, 25 years. It's been great. Hmm. Um, the lend me a tenor workout. Yeah, <laughs> I should, you know, everybody should do this who's, who's, who's trying to, you know, do a crash diet. Maybe this is a dumb question. I should know better, but I have to ask. The show seems, certainly from the audience, like enormous fun. Were the rehearsals fun? Were you guys cracking yourselves up as you developed this? Or was it hard work and nose to the grindstone? To be honest, it was both. It was both. In the course of any you know given day of rehearsal, there were times when the whole thing would just unravel because people were laughing and, and getting goofy and and having too much fun. And at the same time, there were, there were kind of frustrating, painstaking uh, stretches of time where you're, you know, you're just trying to uh, discover or find a, a certain moment or series of, of uh, you know, certain parts of certain scenes that just seemed elusive and difficult to to wrap your body and brain around so it was kind of a it was kind of a uh, you know there, there there were these two things at work there were this kind of wonderful wonderfully freeing uh, uh, improvisational um, you know can't make a mistake sort of feeling colliding with Oh my God! I I don't understand this. I don't know how I'm ever going to make it work. And and um, you know, let's revisit this tomorrow, kind of a thing. You know, just where you just were banging your head on the wall. That sometimes it just took, uh, you know, those those full four and a half weeks of rehearsal to find. So and then and some of these moments didn't really reveal themselves till we got on the actual set in the theater using the. Real furniture, the real props, the real um, well, the doors, the multi—you know—all Abs- of that is, absolutely. is very key. Of course, it's, we we tried as best they tried as best they could to give us a mock-up set in the rehearsal room, uh, you know, flats and doors that open. yeah. Just taping this out doesn't quite. It, it wouldn't let you work do. that way. Yeah. We needed a you know a kind of a couch here and a kind of a chair there and a doors that opened and closed and and that gave us a. A semblance of, of what the rhythm would be, but but it wasn't really until we got the real elements on the you know during those tech rehearsals, those torturous tech rehearsals, that um, some of those uh, seemingly insurmountable, uh, endlessly elusive moments, you know, just came to life. Well, there's another element of timing when you're playing a comedy, which is when the audience starts seeing it, and. How did that impact you? Because 
you can't always predict where the laughs are going to come. You think you know. The people in the rehearsal hall may have found it funny, but audiences are different animals. Absolutely true. You know, there were things that in rehearsal for for an entire month <laughs> were just sure fire. You know, you could always rely on whoever was hanging out or watching or sometimes the designer, sometimes the producer, sometimes the understudies. There were certain things that were just sure fire and guess what? In front of a real audience, not so much. And but but then there were things that in the room, in the rehearsal room, seem to lay there, which explode in the real theater. So it's completely unknowable. The other thing that the audience adds that we we didn't quite understand until we got in there was that they infuse the uh, the cast and the and the play itself with uh, enormous energy and momentum. Uh, any any response, any laugh, really helps to propel you to the next moment and. As is always the case with live theater, though that can be inconsistent and irregular and sporadic. If we were discussing a dramatic play, we would be talking about, you know, as the show has progressed, mm -hmm. have you discovered new things in your role? Well, here, it's a comedy. Are there moments on stage where people discover something new that surprises them and perhaps surprises the people on stage with them? Absolutely. There, there, there are things that – I mean even though this farce because of its nature has to be structured, you know, tightly structured, within that framework, there's room for play and discovery. Um, interestingly enough, you know, you – sometimes you find things in a play like this that get an enormous response. But if you try to repeat that, it doesn't get it. It, it only – the response came from the – the freshness of it, the spontaneity of it. Um, there are other things where you, you – certain things will always get a laugh, always get a response. But you're not aware of why it's getting a response. It has to do with where the focus is being thrown or the, the, the precise timing of it or where your eyes are at any given point. I'll give you an example. Last um, – two, two, I think it was uh, Wednesday matinee. I discovered a moment that I had always had a laugh on for the first, say, month and a half of the run. One day, I didn't have the laugh and I never got it back. And it was it was a very small moment. It's not a real big deal. It wasn't like a baffo laugh. It was just this kind of little ripple that, as I said, propels you to the next thing. And the laugh went away and I just couldn't understand it and I just finally gave up on it. And then in this show, I think it was the Wednesday matinee, I, it, it occurred to me that I was I – was, the moment is um, uh, I'm, looking, um, I'm looking at the door. Max is on the other side of the door. I have to turn to Brooke, to my wife and to the character of Julia and say a line. And I just – I waited until she spoke to me and then I turned my head and did my response – and the laugh, the laugh was there. And I realized for some reason, a month and a half ago, whenever I lost that laugh, I was anticipating her line. I was looking at her before she addressed me hmm. because I'd gotten into the habit on my – now my body's here. Now my head is there. It struck me that if I wait till she speaks to me, she reprimands me. And then I turn and say the line 
And it's what I was doing instinctually in the beginning but wasn't aware that I was doing. It's so interesting with comedy. But it had been a reaction and when it became simply an action. Yeah, when, it, I, when I learned it by road and I, I – without even thinking, was anticipating it and looked hmm. at her prior to her, her reprimand – the laugh was it, – it, it just went away. I mean now these sound like very <laughs> – everything that's going on in the world, this sounds pretty insignificant, I know. But when you're on stage and, you, and you're, you're kind of um, in a farce like this, you're kind of living or dying by these um, – you know, by this audience reaction. Um, so the bottom line is – to get your laugh back? No, yeah. Well, it's not that we're <laughs> it's not that we're just laugh junkies. I mean, we're we're whores, but we're not we're not that big of whores. But but it's it's really more about um, what I started to say in the very beginning of this rant was that the audience uh, response becomes part of the rhythm of the play. It really does. They're, they they uh, they participate in this um, in the in the orchestration of this whole thing. We break the fourth – first of all, we break the fourth wall very early on with the spitting into the – you know, spitting of the grapes into the audience. They're connected to us there and we want and require their constant uh, love. How, how pathetic is that? Is the fourth wall ever broken by you breaking each other up? We don't break each other up deliberately. Um, there, it has happened and I will admit that it – you know, it's happened maybe more often than is, than is, you know, healthy or professional. But um, there's a lot of very goofy characters on that stage, and a lot of very, um, just just a lot of very. <laughs> it's a collection of very odd actors <laughs> who are funny even when they're not trying to be funny. Well, let's go back and figure out how a kid from Green Bay, Wisconsin, ended up on Broadway. Um, was there a lot of theater in Green Bay, Wisconsin, when you were growing up? You know, I, there wasn't a whole lot of professional theater. Okay, um, but nothing there, wrong with community theater. No, or there was theater? some community theater, I guess, and there was uh, you know theater that came out of the schools, which, whether those were high schools or colleges or uh, whatever. I was exposed to it very early on because uh, one of my – I'm from a large family and I'm the second youngest of ten. And one of my older sisters was uh, in a play and at her school, at her high school. And we were – some of the you know the younger siblings were drawn in to play the kids and, uh, and King and I, I think I was six. And, and that was my first you know, real exposure to formal theater. Of course, growing up in a family of ten, it's is theater. I mean, there's always a kind of a built-in audience, and um, there certainly is a premium on you know making each other laugh or or entertaining each other. Um, so that that was the the genesis of the whole. So, thing. did you do high school shows then? When I did. I did up? some high school shows. Um, you know, it was really just it wasn't. Like I had been bitten by the bug, and it was more of just a hobby. One of the, you know, we, some, you know, we played sports sometimes. We did this, we did that, and it was one of the things that I gravitated to. So when you went off to college, now interesting, from Wisconsin to University of Maine, which is a schlep. Um, 
Wish I could explain that. Were you? What did you go to college for? Uh, not why did you go to college, but what did you have a particular course of study you thought you were going to pursue? Well, I think a better question is why did I go to college? Okay, I got it right the first time. <laughs> and I, I have to it, to be just totally frank here. You know, I, I, I really went to college to, and I don't, and I'm not saying this is. I'm not embarrassed really by this. I think. A lot of people do this without even knowing it, but I, I, I went to college to buy time to 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 so that I didn't have to get a job. Does that sound completely? Yeah, but I mean, I think that's you know, I, 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 that's a that's a that's a short way of saying I, you know, I didn't really know what I was going to do. Mm-hmm. I was I was you know dabbling and searching and trying to figure out what it was that I. You know, might be good at, and um, I thought for a while that I would be a teacher. I suppose and, uh, I took a very broad range of courses in my early going, and but somehow I just kept gravitating toward you know the, doing plays and taking courses and theater courses and acting classes. And Maine just happened to have a very good uh, theater department, mm-hmm. and. Um, I found myself um, doing what I liked best, um, doing more of what I liked best. When you finished college, did you think, I'm ready to go to New York and conquer the world? Or did you know immediately that you need, felt you needed more training? I – well, I – I didn't know exactly – my senior year of college, I mean I was gra- I was going to be graduating with a theater degree and we all know what that will get you. Um, you know, there was some theater in Portland and it was good, really good theater. I assumed that I would either try to, you know, do theater there or I would – try to teach possibly, which probably would have meant going to grad school there. But the opportunity came along to uh, to audition for the Yale Drama School. And I I felt like, you know, that I really felt like if I was going to if I was going to um, try to make a a real career out of it um, and make you know, not, I, I never really set out to do this to make money or to gain celebrity or any of that. I really, really didn't. I really, but I, but I wanted to make a living at it, and I wanted to, you know, I didn't want to starve, and I wanted to, you know, just. And I, and I, and I believe that it was possible to do that. Hmm. And I thought, in order to, I, that I was going to need a little more help because I was a, I had become a more, uh, not a big fish in a small pond, but. A, a, a moderately medium-sized fish in a small pond, and I needed to uh, to grow and to get into a bigger. Well, certainly going to the Yale School of Drama. I mean, you you make it sound you know, very low key. Well, the opportunity came along to audition for the Yale School of Drama. I mean, it's has always been and continues to be one of the major acting programs in the United States. Uh, it may not be. Any, a huge pond because it's so selective, but you're putting yourself into, you know, competing 
in a very large pool to get yourself a spot in in a very select pool. Did you have any sense of I'll tell you the level funny, of competition? I'll tell you a funny story. I, not only did I not have any sense of the competition, I, I had no sense at all of anything. And I don't know what was going on in my brain when I was a uh, you know a senior in college, but it, 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 it was a lot of clutter and cobwebs and and. <laughs> You know, varying levels of misinformation. To be completely honest with you, again, I, I'm 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 going to make myself sound foolish, but that's what being an actor is about. I honestly didn't know that there even was uh, such a thing as a graduate drama pro- program. I, to be completely honest, I, I I didn't really know where Yale was. Okay, I grew up in Green Bay. I went to uh, – I suppose if I looked on a map, I could have figured it out. But I, I went to college in Portland and I honestly didn't – I mean I knew Yale was an Ivy League school and it's got to be somewhere out here in the East Coast. And, and, and beyond that, it was you – know, I was blind. I was so blind. And um, if someone told me it was in New Haven, then I would have probably had to ask, OK, where is New Haven? Um you know that's how thick the fog was I, that I was in. Oh my God. Anyway, um, so to be totally honest, a good friend of mine who uh, I had been in college with in Maine who was a year ahead of me, had gone to the Yale Drama School. She had gotten in and gone the year, you know. So she, her first year there was my senior year, still in Maine. Her. Uh, this is such a horribly awful, embarrassing story. Her boyfriend at the time was a classmate of mine in my class, and um, he was saying, "You know, you should really look into this school. You should really." And I had no idea what he was talking about, honestly. And I said, "Yeah, yeah, great. That sounds really great." He said, no, really, I went down to visit and it's really cool and she thinks it would be a great place for you. Great, great, great. I would nod and um, shrug my shoulders. And uh, a few weeks later, uh, so have you uh, got an application? You know, yeah, well, yeah, maybe whatever. A few weeks later, hands me an application, literally hands me an application. <laughs> <laughs> I actually told this story when I was asked to come back to Maine for a commencement uh, to do a commencement speech. Of course, I didn't fill out the application. He would, you know, bug me about it for weeks, and um, you know, he said, "You know, the deadline is coming up. You gotta, gotta do this." And uh, I nod my head. Finally, one day, very close to the deadline, he literally came to my apartment, sat down with me, and you know, looked over my shoulder while I filled out this application. I mean, that's how kind of... um, I would love you to tell me that the punchline of this is, and that man is still my agent today. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that man is a very good actor and a lovely and a good friend and um, Eddie Romanoff. So Um, so you're you're, you're pushed into going to Yale. Well, he kept you know, talking it up and forcing me to actually take the necessary steps. Once I sent off the application, of course, much to my surprise and sort of dismay, they actually responded and said, okay, you have to come down in so many such and such a 
so many weeks and audition. So now I really had to, you know, I had to start preparing. That I was able to do on my oh, own. Oh, good. <laughs> and um, I, I um, went down to New Haven and auditioned. auditioned and it, it worked. So in 77, you went to 76, 77. You 77. went to uh, – By the way, uh, Yale is in New Haven and that's in Connecticut just for all your listeners there. Thank you. As a New Haven native, I appreciate the plug. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, God. Um, for somebody, who I, I didn't know where Harvard was. If that, if that's uh, if any, those of us from New Haven go. Yeah, yeah sure. Right, um, so, for somebody who clearly was not exactly driven, what was the experience of drama school for you? Did that light a fire beyond what you'd already thought about? It was more than a fire. It was a conflagration. It was more of like a lead pipe across the side of the head. I mean, it was really, really different from anything that I had. Experienced or dreamed of. It was uh, very, very intense and, and competitive. Getting in is competitive. That's competitive enough. But being there is because uh, it's a very small, you know. Yeah, they only take a small, a small group of actors. It's a three-year program. You've right. got first, second, and third years. And there's the relationship, uh, particularly at that time, between the drama school and the rep, because really the artistic it's a conservatory of the, of the rep is the dean of the Yale School of Drama at that time, Robert Brewstein. Exactly. So, yes. so you, you were um, – the students were uh, most often you know, taught by people who worked at the Rep, uh, visiting artists, and sometimes used in – your first year, you used in smaller roles or walk-ons at the Rep. You were also doing plays at the school, of course, but you were working – they wanted the uh, students to be working with the professionals at the Rep. Second year, hopefully, you know, better roles. Third year, larger roles. And that was a wonderful uh, system, a really great system. Uh, still a terrific school. And also a school that a lot of people looked to for where was the ne- where were the next talents coming from. Exactly. You went there probably only a year or two after Meryl Streep and Sigourney Weaver graduated. A few years after. Yeah, but, so. but, you know, not, not far. So, so there's a lot of attention. Um, I have to take a moment just to mention um, that earlier this year, as, as some people listen to this program know, the American Theatre Wing put out a book called The Play That Changed My Life and I wrote a very short preface about the play that changed my life and it was a Yale rep production in 1979 of Sam Shepard's Buried Child uh, featuring uh, – slip sheeted into the program, not even printed in the program but, but slipped in. Uh, was the information about two students from the drama school who had been cast in the show. And uh, one was Polly Draper and the other was Tony Shalhoub. Um, it was an extraordinary experience for me. For all I knew, you could have been acting for decades, except <laughs> that it said second year Yale School of Drama. Um, were those opportunities to be on stage at the rep fundamentally different than – the work that you were doing, the plays you were doing within the drama program itself. Absolutely. Um, those roles were – I mean it was kind of a mixed blessing really. Um, the students of the school coveted the roles at the rep. You know, to be cast at the rep, uh, especially uh, in a sizable role uh, in your second year was a big deal. Um, 
it meant that certain people in their third year you know, may have gotten passed over or something. So that was a really big deal. Mm. Um, Maybe you had resentful third years well, looking at you. Inevitably, mm. inevitably there were you – know, it was competitive. Yeah. I mean people were – as supportive as they could be, and then they were. Well, it's like it's theater all the way. We, you know, if, if you go for the same role, we love you, but boy, we'd rather yeah. get the part. Sure, and but the, you know, so these roles, as I said, were, were coveted, but the pressure was enormous, as you can imagine, because uh, you know you were you were handed an opportunity, you know, um, it's like a star quarterback or a star pitcher going out there, and uh, if you blow it, well, you know. People will kind of remember if you did a good job, but they'll really remember if you tank and and you know, you you risk kind of you, you risk your stock being lowered and you, you risk as all, as every actor fears, no matter how old they are, no matter how many movies they do, no matter what, they always fear I'm going to be found out to be the mm-hmm. no talent that I really am, you know. Um, so it in in a sense it was uh, it was terrifying really to. To, to, to go to the rep and to have this on your shoulders and know that everyone was looking at you and some were looking for you to fail. You know? Well, and some were mighty impressed by you, well, I can say. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's very interesting that for the time that you were at the rep, you were there through right through the end at the drama school, uh, there right to the end of – Bruce Dean's tenure, if I'm correct, or did you finish in the last year of Lloyd Richards's first? Yes, first my year? last year was the first year of Lloyd Richards. So okay. I was two years under Robert Bruce Dean and and one year under Lloyd Richards. Now, what many people may not recall is that when Bruce Dean departed from Yale, he said, essentially, I'm taking my theater, the theater that I founded, Yale the Web. actors, the artists, and I'm moving it to Harvard. And what what it had been the artistic core of the Yale Rep moved to it became the ART That's in right. Boston. His vision. And a year after you graduated, Bob Brustein invited you up to be part of ART. You did three or four seasons up there. I did four seasons. Yes, he invited um, me and and a, a couple of other my classmates. Um, well, he invited actually several of my classmates, but only um, only th- three of us chose to go. But um, it was uh, it was such a gift. It was such a gift to be first of all to to move from <laughs> New Haven to Cambridge was a gift. No offense to you, of course. Um, to to be working, um, you know, it was almost in a way a continuation of the program at Yale. We, because you you have the same artistic director and the same vision going forward, you're working with the same actors that you know and playwrights that you know and designers and and um, and, and it, it was it was uh, except this time you're not a student you're actually on the payroll and you know we certainly weren't making tons and tons of money but to, to be getting paid for doing what we had been you know. Paying to do mm-hmm. for the last three years <laughs> nice was, was really a nice turnabout. Yeah, and and we had steady work, and we were you know that theater we did we toured and they went to Europe and uh, toured around uh, in New England and, and it was so um, really really for me a very productive time cementing everything that I had been working on um, and and. Uh, uh, 
growing with at, at the Yale Drama School. Hmm. 18 productions, I believe, in your four years there, which is certainly a lot of opportunity. As you say, the continuity is extraordinary. So when you finish your four years, was it then, okay, now I'm going to New York? Well, you know, it wasn't as if I signed a four-year contract. Right. When, I, when I first went up there, it was really just one year a at season, a time, yeah. a season-by-season season thing. I was actually, to be honest, only going to stay one season. But it was so great and it was so nurturing and the – you know, the, the the longer we were there, the role, the better the roles got, and the more kind of part of a community we felt, and and the more part of this company we were becoming. <clears throat> so one year turned into four years, but I felt at the end of my fourth year, even though I was getting really nice roles, that I was um, maybe a certain sense of. Uh, Complacency was maybe starting to set in for me. Mm. Um, Despite, we should say, extraordinarily challenging work being done by that company. I guess I've always been – I've had this illness, (laughs) which is that I I seem to want to uh, have this sort of – this thing of of wanting to start over or or, um, have newer or greater challenges or something. I don't know. It happened again, and I, I when I left Boston, I was feeling quite comfortable there at, at the ART, and I came to New York, really not knowing what would happen. Um, then, then things went well for the six years that I was in New York. Right when I was starting to feel really at home here, I picked up and moved to Los Angeles. Okay, but you've just skipped past some things we have to ask about. Well, no, I, I only raise yeah, this to say the, that... The, the restlessness, the, yeah, the yeah, desire uh, for something, what's next? A little bit of that, I think. You know, it's, it's sort of like, you know, you talk about when your child or, you know, goes from being a senior in high school, let's say, where they're sort of top dog to being a freshman in college. Or mm-hmm. We all did this. We all experienced this. You go from this position of knowing everything and this position of power to being new kid, you know, and... Oh, I'm really on the bottom of the the totem pole now, and, and then you you go through that experience, and you're then you're a senior in college, and then you go, oh, okay, well then I'm going to go to graduate school. Now you're starting back at you know. There's all those those. People. If I were deeply spiritual minded, I would be saying you were continually seeking a rebirth every okay. few years. Maybe maybe it has something to do with that. Maybe, and I've often tried to you know self analyze and figure out what what this problem is that I have and um, some sometimes I, I think I attribute it to the fact that I was the second youngest of uh, ten so I was always there were always sort of people sort of above me and that I was sort of looking up to or drawing from and uh, people that were modeling you know for me uh, modeling behavior or mm-hmm. life choices or whatever and maybe that mechanism has just sort of you know stayed with me. But I have to say, I mean, not that this is this is a therapy session. This is an interview. I was but, hoping it was a therapy. But, session. Well, I can charge you when we're done. I'd be <laughs> I'd, I'd be happy to. You know, it it just seems that you know I have to say for someone who says this is a problem, I would say we should all have such problems because it has brought you success. 
I guess that's not a therapist. That's a Jewish mother. Yeah. Which, all have problems. <laughs> which is sort of like having the best of both worlds. Um, yeah, I, I, it has served me. It has served me. Yes. Well, let me ask you about a few specific productions because we've, we've gotten oh, you please. through school. Um, fairly quickly when you came to New York, you ended up in the gender-reversed odd couple. Right, the female Which played first out at the Amundsen. I mean, but they call it the female odd couple, but I say gender reversed because, of course, there were two women in the original production. You and Louis Stadlin ended up playing what had been the Pidge's sisters and suddenly are the Costazuela brothers. Very good. Um, How did, you know, coming out of ART, where you've been doing School for Scandal and Three Sisters and Waiting for Godot, suddenly you're in a Neil Simon comedy. Yes, that was a, <laughs> that was another hard left turn. Um, I felt after working, you know, having been, you know, um, sort of under Brustein's tutelage for seven years, I he felt, must have gone pale. I when felt he heard like this I was one. going over to the enemy <laughs> camp there, um, but he was very supportive in the end and, and came to see it and everything. Um, yeah, we did not do Neil Simon at the Yale <laughs> for the ART. We just didn't didn't, didn't come up. But uh, God, it was fun when I finally got to. When I did it, um, yeah, it was uh, one of my first auditions when I got to the city, and it was a started actually with an out of town tour, right, which culminated at the Amundsen, and it was a terrific, um, a terrific introduction to to New York and commercial theater, and I certainly have no regrets about that. It leads me to a question which really covers the scope of your career, which is you played Jesus Costazuela. Uh, <laughs> certainly not as a realistic – you're a generic Latin character or, or a uh, – or even in some ways perhaps stereotypical Latin character, um, outrageous character. Um, throughout your career on stage and film, there's something very interesting about you seem to be cast – as every possible ethnicity. We'll talk in a minute about conversations with my father where you're playing Jewish, you, you're playing Latin in in The Odd Couple. Um, it, you seem a malleable figure but always ethnic. You've played Italian uh, certainly. Um, you are in fact of Lebanese extraction. Is that That's correct? Right. Um, does – does that force you to learn about those other cultures at all? Do you do you have to become multicultural to play all of these different roles? Well, you know, interestingly enough, it, 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 it's not a far cry. You know, it's it's not a far stone's throw from being a Lebanese or Jewish or Italian or Hispanic. Really, it's all kind of a, of a piece in a way. For at least in my mind. Um, what I what I worked on, especially when I was in, in drama school, was uh, you know kind of uh, I, I, I I worked hard on on, on um, accents and knowing that I was going to probably be doing the you know the different ethnic roles, and they had a facility for accents, and so I I tried to bolster that um, that skill. Um. Some people, you know, would say that it was a liability that it, you know, that it limits you, and you know that you 
you you're ethnic looking, so you you know that you were going to be playing Arab terrorists or whatever for the rest of your life. And um, you know, I found it to just to be the opposite. I found it to be um, it just gave me it gave me all of these 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 possibilities and choices and um, turned into an asset. Hmm. After you had done the Odd Couple, um, you spent some time at the New York Shakespeare Festival, public theater, um, doing several shows uh, while Joe Papp was still running the organization. Certainly Mr. Brewstein would have been happier. You were back doing uh, Richard II and Henry IV. Yeah, and I also did a couple of plays at the public. Um, um, zero you know, positive. Zero positive. Harry Condolian play. Right. And then little – and uh, For Dear Life. <laughs> for Dear Life. Susan Miller play. Um, yeah, I, I – it's so funny. I, I – you make it sound like I went right from the odd couple into that. There were, no, there I'm were a skipping, few years in I'm there where – I'm skipping along. There were a couple just, of dry spells. We, we only have the hours. Okay. So. Well, I mean I just wanted to insert here that I did – even though I was living in New York, I did go back into regional theaters a lot. I, mm-hmm. I mean, I went to New Haven again, worked at Long Wharf. Progress to, at Long Wharf. I went to, um, to the Coconut Grove and did uh, Keith 3D and played called Roman Coke. And, and so I was going out into the regions and I was in Chicago and um, loving that. You know, I was a, kind of a gypsy, being a gypsy actor, didn't really, you know, just throw a few things in a suitcase and go. Those were nice days when you know you didn't have any responsibilities or you didn't have, you didn't own anything and you didn't really want to own anything, and um, but but there were there were opportunities in in New York as well. In '89, you found yourself back on Broadway. I don't found yourself. It's not like you woke up one morning, but um, you were you um, replaced uh, Peter Friedman in the Heidi Chronicles playing right. uh, playing Scoop. Um, that was fortuitous um, in a few ways. Obviously, a Broadway gig is a good gig, and um, you liked one of your co-stars, right? Well, I originally I was doing the play with uh, Christine Lottie, and um, David Hyde Pierce was in that one. Never a lot of great people, and um, we were the replacement cast, you could say. But then Christine left after four months, and to, I think she had an out to do a film, and uh, Brooke. Uh, came in to replace her, my wife, my current wife, my one and only wife, Brooke Adams. Um, she came in to replace Christine and that was that. And to what you were just saying about all of these years of being itinerant, maybe that suddenly changed how you looked at work. We should acknowledge that, of course, you've been on not one successful TV series. You referred to Monk, but certainly Wings for how many seasons? Six. So six seasons of that. So, so that certainly has an effect, and the oppor- not the the opportunities necessarily were less for theater, but simply the time to do theater. But you you did um, well. Come yes, back. there was. Yeah. I was. I had moved to California. You know, there was. You know, with two children, and and yeah, my whole lifestyle uh, sort of changed then. Yeah. Although I did come back even. Um, when Wings was uh, was going on, I, I I still came back to do conversations with my father during that time. Well, just before conversations with my father, I wanted to ask you: Is it true that you were asked to play the Kevin Spacey role in Lost in Yonkers and actually turned it down? That is true. That is Why true. did you turn down what 
That's turned what, out to be one of Neil Simon's major, more serious plays, and, that's and what a, a great showcase. A lot role. of people asked me at the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm asking you 20 years later, yeah, including Jay Bender, the casting director. What are you thinking? Um, I, boy, this is a this is a difficult thing too. I mean, I um, there were a lot of a lot of things um, at, at work here. Uh, that, that 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 prompted that decision. One was um, that I had just finished doing Heidi. I had done ten months on on Broadway in Heidi Chronicles, and um, as that was coming to an end, I I had done a play off Broadway prior to Heidi called Ramo's Nephew at CSC. It was a two character play, and we had some real success with it here in New York off Broadway. And um, we had then we'd then taken it to Boston at to ART where it also did very well, and uh, we were going to go do it in Los Angeles and a small theater out there. And when I say small, I mean small. And um, I had promised uh, this, this director, who was a very dear friend of mine, Andre Belgrader, who had been a teacher of mine at Yale and a I uh, had directed numerous plays, uh, not only at Yale and at ART, but also in New York. Um, and I had said that, you know, I told them we were going to, um, I, I had agreed to do this play in Los Angeles. And uh, then that's when the that's when the Lost and Yonkers thing came up. And it was a very, very difficult decision. But... Um, I, I certainly don't regret the decision. Hmm. A lot of things happened um, by my going to Los Angeles and staying there. That, that wouldn't have happened, I think. Uh, of course, I do, you don't know what you know what path. We never know, like, but you never know. But but um, so there it is. You know, you, you marrying my wife and marrying my wife and 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 all of these other. Opportunities that came along, uh, even though the difficult, even though the decision felt a little funky at the time, it turned out to be, I think, the the path I was supposed to be on. Now again, and it didn't hurt Kevin, by the way. No, it didn't. It certainly, it certainly didn't. didn't he should he should thank you. <laughs> um, conversations with my father. Interestingly enough, I draw a parallel. You didn't do Lost in Yonkers, which was a serious piece by a writer best known for his comedies. Herb Gardner, also a, a comic writer, mined a darker vein for conversations with my father. And I'm wondering what that experience was for you um, to be in this play where he was he was going – perhaps going deeper than he had before and certainly the relationship to Judd Hirsch playing your father. Uh, again, uh, this this whole it's funny how my my career choices and and these jobs they're, they're so they're so interconnected with my own life and my own personal path in a way. Um, I, I just want to preface this by saying we first did conversations in Seattle at Seattle Rep, where Dan Sullivan had been the artistic director. We first did it there the year before we did it in New York, and. Uh, you know, this play is is somewhat autobiographical in the sense that 
Herb's writing about his own father and that experience of immigrant uh, coming to New York and all that. And it's so odd. It's so interesting. Even though I didn't know Herb at that time, he was introduced to me through Dan Sullivan. I had worked with Dan on Heidi. I was so influenced by Herb Gardner, having not known – when I was a teenager and I first saw Thousand Clowns, the, the movie, of course, not the play, I saw the movie on television with Jason Robards. It, it so, was so impactful. I think that's somewhere deep down in, in, in my gut. I felt this – that was the moment when I thought I, I want to be an actor. After seeing this material and these actors doing what they did. I mean, I had seen, you know, movies and plays and this and that. But this one thing, knowing it had been a play and and the film was actually sort of staged like a play, shot, shot like, you know, as if it was a play. It was – it hit me so hard and it was – I had this – I became infatuated with, with Herb Gardner. Hmm. And then lo and behold, years later – he calls me on the telephone out of the blue. I was living in Los Angeles and he says uh, – he said to me, uh, Dan Sullivan gave me your number and we're going to do this play and it's about the, my father, my, you know, my late father. And I – he sent me the play. He said, just think about it. We're going to do it in Seattle. While I'm reading this play and I'm thinking about it, my father passed. My father died. I mean, it just, it was, it was, it's all about, you know, sons chasing the ghosts of their father. And I called him up and I said, you're not going to believe this. I can't, because he wanted me to give him a decision. I said, I can't, my father has just passed away and I've got to go deal with this. I can't give you any kind of a decision right now. So he said, that's okay. Do what you have to do. Take your, I understand. I lost my father. Judd lost his father. Dan lost his father. Totally understand Call me when you, when you come, uh, you know, when you come back to the surface, and um, I realized, uh, you know, after dealing with my father's funeral and everything, that this was probably going to be the best thing I could do for myself in a sort of therapeutic way, and I needed to get out of L.A. Hmm. And uh, I called him. I said, "I'm, I'm in." And it, it, again, you know, these 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 experiences are tied so personally to your. Um, you know, to your to your life's journey. Mm-hmm. I have to do a couple of quick hits now because we just have a little bit of time left. Oh, that's gone fast. So I am I am jumping uh, ahead a few years, waiting for I don't know whether you called it Godot or Godot in, in the production that you did, but at Classic Stage, you mentioned you'd been at Classic Stage ten years earlier in Rameau's Remo. yeah. nephew, um, waiting for Godot with John Turturro. Christopher Lloyd, do I remember correctly, directed by Andre Belgrader, who you just yes. mentioned. Um, that certainly is a very strong cast in a very small theater. Yes. Um, what was what was the experience of, of Godot for you? Well, interestingly, this was the second time I had worked on Godot with this director. Huh. Andre had directed a production up at ART. Um, let's see, that would have been 19... 19- Maybe 1983. I'm, I'm thinking, he directed a production of Godot in which I played Pazzo. Hmm. Um, and here you're playing Didi. 
and here I'm playing Vladimir. Same Lucky, by the way, a lovely actor named Richard Spohr played Lucky in both productions. Brilliant. Um, so this is my second foray into this incredibly <laughs> the Mount Everest of all plays. Um, but I love John, and I, of course, work with John, um, and would do anything for him or with him. And Andres, as I said, was a, a, a trusted friend and uh, somebody that I work with more than anyone else I've ever worked with. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, director I've worked with more often than any other. And um, but again, you know, doing it in New York, it's a daunting, daunting. Hmm task um i love that theater uh well, you know we did it it's it's laid out in three-quarter round and um i loved working with john i would love to have another whack at that play really? when i'm older why yeah because i think you know at the time maybe we were too young to really to do it justice. Hmm. Um, we did our best and I think as the run progressed, we we grew into it. But um, it's such a it's such a limitless uh, kind of a gold mine, you know, sort of you can never you never really find the the, the bottom. You never really can get to the mother load. <laughs> it's hmm. it's 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 endlessly challenging and fascinating. Hmm. With life in L.A. and certainly the success of Monk, we didn't see you here in New York again until about three years ago when you did a new play, Teresa Rebeck's The Scene, at Second Stage Theater. Why that play? Because I assume you'd had other opportunities on hiatuses, et cetera, to do plays. Why that particular play? Yes, um that's a uh, that's true. I did have other opportunities, and uh, I think um, well, Patricia Heaton, who's a friend of mine, uh, came to me with the material. She was going to do it, and uh, she was finished with Raymond, I think, at that time, and she wanted to come to New York and do a play, and she brought it to me. Hmm. She said, "Look, I think this part would be great for you." And what do you say? What, 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 what would you like to go to New York for a little while? And and I read the material, and again, it was just a no-brainer. I mean, this Teresa is such a terrific writer. This role is meaty and funny, and um, uh, lost a little weight on that one too. Um, <laughs> when you're living in LA, it's a lot easier to kind of commit to an off-Broadway piece because the commitment is so much shorter. You know, when you have kids and everything, you don't want to be away too long. You don't want to uproot everybody, hmm. and. They very graciously – this is a four, only a four-character play. The playwright, the director and the other two actors who were from New York agreed to come to L.A. to rehearse. Wow. So that meant instead of – and it was a two-month run. So instead of spending three months here, we, you know, we were able to live, live at home in L.A., rehearse there and then come here for only two months. And that, mm. that was such a generous thing that they did because it, it made it really, really workable. Well, now and through the summer, you continue on the lend me a tenor diet. <laughs> um, yes, and lend me a tenor weight loss. Though program. I asked this question, having had this conversation, I probably shouldn't. Uh, any immediate plans afterwards? Well, um, 
That's a good question. I, I, there's a, a film that I, I might be – that I'm just kind of waiting to hear if that's going to happen as all – it's always the case with films. You're always waiting to, you know, to find out if the financing is in place. Um, so that's a possibility. I am looking to produce some television, uh, television that I'm not acting in but uh, just, to be, just to be a producer. And um, you know, I don't really have any um, any solid plans to yeah. to, uh, to to jump back into a series right now. Well, as I said, from having had this hour with you, it doesn't surprise me that you say you don't know exactly what's next. <laughs> I don't. I don't. And I, in a way, I, to... after eight years of a series, I kind of like being in that. That, that place of the unknown. You know, part of the fun and part of the choice of becoming an actor is you visit and revisit the void a lot. And we must love that because we keep doing it. Um, you know, we don't get into a, a job or a career where we're, we know where we're going to be for 25 years or 30 years at a shot. We, um, we, there's something in us that wants to kind of peer into the unknown every once in a while. And I'm back there again and I'm kind of liking it. Well, I just want to say, Tony Shalhoub, it has been a true pleasure to meet you. Thank you for being with us today on Downstage Center and speaking very personally. Thank you for being part of the play that changed my life. Thank you, sir. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, please remember that we are a not-for-profit organization. And we hope that you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening. And no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theatre.